Please again take your Bibles with me and open up to Ephesians chapter 6. This will be our third message on Spirit-filled parents. Last week got such a good response from the children, they wanted to hear more about discipline. We just had to give them one more. Now, but this will be our, our last message on what is an extremely important topic, the raising up of the next generation for the Lord. So let's begin by reading verses 1 through 4 of Ephesians chapter 6. Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In this one little verse, Paul gives us the goal for parenting. We are, as parents, to bring our children up in the Lord. And he begins with a negative command, Father's Don't provoke your children to anger, and the reason he begins here is because if you do, this will become a barrier to what is the goal, a barrier that will be extremely hard to overcome in bringing your children up in the Lord as directed. And so, he says, don't do that, that will become a stumbling block, and so by implication, we are to put that off Repent of it before the Lord, go before your children, ask for forgiveness, change the behavior is the idea. So that's the negative aspect of our parenting, what we are to put off, which we considered a few weeks ago. And then last week we began looking at a positive aspect, although it's often viewed negatively, it is positive, uh, and that is the discipline. Bring your children up in the discipline of the Lord. This week, we want to look at the instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, these two terms are similar in that they are pointed in the same direction, bringing the child up to spiritual maturity, and yet they are different, and then they both emphasize a different aspect of the kind of parenting and instruction that it takes to get there. You are to have both. Eating healthy is great, exercise is great, but you need both to be healthy, and this is the case here. William Hendrickson, the commentator, sums it up this way, discipline refers primarily to what is done to the child, rewards, punishment, accountability, discipline. Hence the writer of Hebrews and his exhortation, Hebrews 12, 11, for the moment, all discipline That is what God is doing to you seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is what we do to the child, the rod, the reward. Instruction then is to, what does it refer to? Verbal correction, uh, counsel, teaching. This is the verbal aspect. This is what we say. Exhortation and monishment. And this word instruction is used two other times in the New Testament. Once here and then two others. And one of those is in Titus 3.10. You get a sense of at least part of what this can mean depending on the context. 
As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, that's our word, instructing him once, of course this is strong instruction, and then twice have nothing more to do with him. Instruction can certainly include the idea of a warning. The other occurrence is in 1 Corinthians. You can turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because actually here, Paul provides us with a really good example of both kinds of teaching, discipline and instruction. This is what we read. This 1 Corinthians 10, 11 speaks of a time when God severely punished Israel for their disobedience. Here's what it says. Now, these things happen to them as an example. That is, this is what God did to them, and it serves to provide a corrective kind of warning to those who did not die. But they were written down for our instruction. That is, here is a verbal warning. So there is something that God did to teach, and there is also something God is saying to teach. And both of these are important, and this is essentially what is going on in Ephesians 6, 4. Sometimes God teaches and disciplines and trains us through trials, and sometimes He teaches and disciplines and trains us through His Word, through instruction and correction and reproof and everything that comes from reading and hearing preaching of His Word. And I don't know about you, but I need both. Even though I can read it, and I can understand it, and I can get exactly what it means. I know what God wants me to do. There have been times, and there will continue to be times, when God needs to send a trial, a circumstance into my life in order for it to click. I need affliction. It was good for me that I was afflicted, the psalmist writes. This is a part of teaching. But not only do I need the trial, I also need His Word. For one, so that when the trial comes, I know He loves me. All things are working for the good of those who love me. There are convictions that I build my life upon. You need both what God does and also what He says. So it is with our parenting. Loving parents train through punishments, rewards, accountability, things that they do with and for their kids. And loving parents train and teach through verbal instruction. There are times to do and there are times to say and they had better match up. God has commanded that we do both. And so last week, having looked at discipline, this week we will look at instruction. Instruction. Now before we get into this, let me just give you a quick definition of instruction. Literally, in the Greek, it means to place in the mind. To place in the mind. So the idea that Paul is after is that here we have truth, and we are seeking to place this truth in the minds of our children, which, by the way, is much the same as what the world is doing. They are seeking to place a worldview in the minds of your children. And it better be what we are doing. We are seeking to place a worldview, the truths of God's Word, in the minds of our kids. Verbal instruction. 
And of course, the obvious question then comes, what are we to teach them? How are we to teach them? What are these truths that we want their little minds to grab a hold of? Now, speaking of grabbing a hold of, before I lose some of you because you're out there thinking, well, I'm not a parent. This doesn't apply to me. I don't have to listen anymore. I'm really tired. You're out. It's all it took. Good parenting is really a lot like good discipleship. And good discipleship is a lot like good parenting, which means all of us have something to learn. We are all called to disciple one another and to be discipled. Some of you are called to be parents, and so these principles for parenting apply in all sorts of relationships. Now, I want to show you, turn to 1 Corinthians 4.14. Paul speaks often as a parent, a brother in the familial relationship kind of way, and I want to show you how he relates to others often as a parent in his discipleship relationships. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 4.14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed. He realizes sometimes people may misjudge him and what he's aiming to do and his motivations. He's trying to correct that. But to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, as a father would his children, be an imitator of me. This is why I sent you Timothy, look how he refers to Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He's relating as a loving parent. Philemon verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. In other words, as I got to know Onesimus, he became to me like a child. I related to him like a father. In other words, I passed on the word of God. I sought to teach him and to correct him and to train him in righteousness. Titus 1.4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. 1 Timothy 1.2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. And then turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. Here, Paul makes it extremely clear This is how he views his discipleship. What's his model? What's the illustration? 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. He says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Why? Because you had become very dear to us. Paul, it's almost like you're going too far here. Why? To him, discipleship and teaching is not just about getting across information. He loves them, just as a father would his children. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you, charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. A discipler is like a good parent, a good parent like a discipler. Not exactly, of course, 
But the love, the care, the goals, all extremely similar. The information that we're seeking to teach, the way we're trying to teach, very similar. And so with that in mind, hopefully now that I have all of you on the ship and some of you have not jumped off, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Because there is probably no better place in laying down the foundational principles that we are to teach our children than this chapter. What we're going to see are three concepts that every good parent, every parent must seek to get across to their children. This is what we want them to know and to grab a hold of. And the first thing we find is the most foundational. As parents, number one, we must teach our children to believe in God. We're teaching them, our desire for them is that they would believe in God. Uh, Listen, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. This comes down to us, it's known as the Shema, which is just the first word here, hear, Shema. And essentially the declaration is monotheism. There is only one true God, just one. And this word oneness is not stressing singularity or just singleness. It's actually the idea of unity. As in Genesis 2-4, the husband and wife were one. So while the verse is intended to be a clear and concise statement of monotheism, it does not exclude the concept of the Trinity. As parents, we are to do our very best to constantly affirm to our children the existence of the one true God. That our God is the God of the Bible, and He is the only one. He alone is to be worshipped, to be feared, to be loved, to be obeyed. He is our God. There is no rival. But as for me and my house, Joshua 24, 15, we will serve the Lord. We will serve Yahweh as he has revealed himself in his word. So a basic question for all of us, am I promoting the priority of God, the oneness of God in my home? Do my children know that I truly believe in the existence of God. As if, dad, mom, they seem to live as though God is always there. His presence is before us. Do you teach them that all of the gods are false? Do you teach them about God, his attributes, his power, his love, his mercy, his justice? All of these things, when they hear you pray, Do they hear you actually in the throne room of God or just going through the motions? I remember some years back reading the autobiography of John G. Payton. He's a missionary, famous missionary to the New Hebrides Islands to cannibals. And of course, if you're going to go be a missionary to cannibals, you had better believe in the God that you're about to claim. What is it about his upbringing that produced a man 
who had such conviction and trust in the Lord. He writes, Though everything else in my early religion were by some unthinkable catastrophe to be swept out of my memory, blotted from my understanding, my soul would wander constantly back to those early scenes when my father would shut himself up once again in the sanctuary closet, the prayer closet. And then I would hear the echoes of his cries to God. And I would know God is real. How much my father's prayers during my youth impressed me, I can never explain. Nor could any stranger understand it. When he, my father, on his knees and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, would pour out his whole soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world to service of Christ, and for every personal and even domestic need, it was then that we all felt as if we were in the presence of the living Savior. And it was through this, he writes, that we all learned to love and to know God as the one true God, our divine friend. Sometimes we're teaching our children when we do not even realize we're teaching our children. They're listening to everything. In here, they're listening, watching, watching you sing. Do you sing as if God's on the throne? Your song, a living example and confession that God is real. Hear, O Israel, speaking to the nation, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Children must know this. The writers of Writer of Hebrew tells us it's actually impossible to please God if you do not understand this. Hebrews eleven six and without faith it is impossible to please Him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists, and not only that that He rewards those who seek Him. You want your children to grow up pleasing the Lord. First, they have to know and be convinced He exists. That. He is, it says. So parents, as we bring our children to God, we must remember that whoever would draw near to Him must first believe that He is as He revealed Himself. It's no good to believe in a God, to know that He's up there. They must believe in Him as He is, as is written in the Word. Perfectly loving, perfectly holy, full of mercy and grace full of light in him, no darkness at all, just and yet will by no means clear the guilty, sovereign and powerful, omniscient and omnipresent. He is God and, by the way, he's good. Must believe that he is and also he is a rewarder of those who seek him. I know he's powerful, but I also know he's good. You are good, Psalm 119. 68, and do good. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, 
The Lord is one. Every opportunity we get, we seek to live our lives in such a way and to teach in such a way that would put before our children God as he is. Even the demons believe and shudder. This means not only must we teach them that he is, but also teach them to love him. And this is the second aspect. Yes, believe in God. Second, teach them to love God. Verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, your strength. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That is, you are to teach your children to love God sincerely and completely, wholeheartedly and genuinely, with their whole person is the idea. This being the case, it's not enough just to teach them to go through the motions. If they can sit in church quietly, that's an accomplishment, but you're teaching them to love God, to want to be here more than anyone else. All your heart, strength, soul, mind, your whole person. Jesus confirms this, of course, Matthew twenty two thirty five. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? If you're going to ask a question to test Jesus, pick one that's harder. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Teach them this commandment. This is what God expects. Let them see that you desire God, that you love God. That this is not just a religion, but a relationship. Teach them that we go to church not just because we have to, because there's somewhere we got to be, people are counting on us. Teach them that we go to church because we love God. And we are here to worship him and to adore him. We desire to listen to his word. Teach them that we read God's word because we love the God of the word. Teach them this by the way you use your time. Mom and dad, they actually love God not just on Sunday, but every day of the week. All the time talking about God, serving God. What is the deal? He's God. He is who he says he is. Is there any other response that's appropriate? Put before them a God who is worthy of their love. Every moment of every day the Lord gives them. To love him with everything they have. Because if you don't, none of it will matter. They can come out with all the facts, all the information, it will not matter. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, noisy gong, clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. 
If your child is the greatest athlete but has not love for God, he's nothing. 4.0, no love for God, nothing. Can memorize Bible verses, nothing. Serve in the church without love, nothing. Just a noisy gong, clanging cymbal. 1 Corinthians 16.22, later in the same book, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Teach your children or motivate them to obey God without a sincere love for the Lord, and you've cursed them. Ephesians 6.24, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. You're not teaching your children to love God perfectly. They're not going to be able to do that. That's the desire. But what you are aiming for is a love that is incorruptible. Because what's going to happen is they're going to go out from you and they're going to be presented with all kinds of things and worldviews and temptations that Satan would love to use and their flesh would love to grab onto to corrupt whatever you have sought to plant in their hearts. A love that is incorruptible, such that whatever comes their way, whatever trial, whatever circumstance, whatever relationship, I love Christ. I love Christ. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Teach them to love God. Third, to live for God. Believe in God, love God, live for God. Verse 7 begins, you shall teach them how diligently. Teach them diligently. That is intensely. It means to sharpen them. A word picture is essentially that you are to take your children as if they were a wood block of wood and then diligently and intensely carve them and shape them through discipline and instruction into the form God wants them to be. Constant instruction. Teach them diligently to your children. That is God's word. What does that look like? He says you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. All the time. And Moses is not after formal instruction at 8 a.m., noon, afternoon, evening. That's not what this word means. Talk here is just natural conversation. Mundane conversation almost. It assumes a relationship. And he says you are to talk about God and his word when you sit in the house. When you rise up in the morning, when you lie down, when you go out of the house, constantly talking about it. Paul says something similar to Timothy regarding his responsibilities in preaching. 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word how often? Be ready in season and out of season. There's only two seasons, therefore, all the time. Moses is after the same thing. How often are you to teach your children? Is it just Sunday? Is it just Wednesdays? Is it just family Bible time? No, all the time. You're looking for opportunities to speak the word of God to your children. So when you're in the store and you hear a song come on, 
hey, that message of love, is that right? Does that match up with God's word? That thing that's trending amongst all your friends, how should we think about that? How does God want us to think about that? That movie, what does God's word say there about that? Is that relationship, is that what pleases God? Dating, how should we think about dating? How should we think about marriage? How should we think about how we respond to our friends when they don't treat you the way that you want to be treated? Constantly teaching them and talking with them and drawing out their heart. Do we agree with that? Why not? Is there a verse that teaches something different? Hey, that song that you're singing, Great is Thy Faithfulness, that's a great song. What does that mean? How has God been faithful to us? How has He been faithful to you? Constantly teaching them, reminding them of God's Word. One of my first jobs in college was waiting tables. And I went to my friend, I said, I need a job that is beyond mowing lawns at that point in my life. And because I didn't have that many lawns to mow, maybe I wasn't that good. And my friend said, sure, I can get you a job in New Mexico at this restaurant. And so, okay, that sounds fun. And get away from Lubbock for a little bit, go to the mountains. And so he got me the job. And we're driving there, and I'm nervous as all get out. I don't like talking in front of people. This is a terrifying thing for me. And as I'm driving, I say, hey, how did you get me the job? And he said, well, I told them that you've waited tables for a long time, which did not make me any less nervous. But nevertheless, got there, and this is what they did. They paired me with another waiter who had been waiting tables for a long time. And this waiter taught me, this is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. Hey, when a customer is angry, do this. Give them a free dessert, which works very well, by the way. And then eventually, it flipped. And I waited the tables, and they looked over my shoulder, and they were constantly teaching me, hey, you missed that, you need to do this. Hey, what you did there, that's, that's not great, do something else. And I was able to ask them questions, hey, that right there, did that go okay, is that what I should have done? And you know what, all aiming towards a spiritually mature waiter. But that is parenting. When they're young, you're doing it, you're teaching them. They're watching you. But eventually they grow and they start doing it. And now, hopefully, you're looking over their shoulder just a little bit. And you're asking them some questions. And you're saying, hey, why did you do that? Hey, that thing that you went and did, do you now think that was the best idea? How would you do that differently? You're teaching them. And guess what? Lots of repetition. Saying the same thing over and over again. And this is what Moses is saying, repeating these same simple truths over and over again. John Wooden, the famous UCLA basketball coach, once stated, there are eight laws of learning, explanation, demonstration, imitation, repetition, 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 repetition. We got it. Constantly saying the same thing. Why? Because it's important. And that's really the idea behind verse 7. Constantly teaching the same ideas. 
And then we get to verse 8. Changes a little bit, and he says, You shall bind them, God's command, as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. On your hand, where our hands, that's what we use to do things. The idea would seem to be that we are to let God's word order our actions. Well, how does that happen? Well, frontlets between your eyes, which the Israelites took very literally, tied little boxes to their foreheads. We don't want to do that. But what we do want to do is what the verse is after, and that is to constantly be meditating and thinking on God's Word. And guess what? If your children learn not only how to read the Word, but meditate on the Word, memorize the Word, then as they go out, it's to be on your hands, and now their actions will be informed by the Word. Because they come into situations, and I don't know if you've noticed, but there's not a chapter and verse for every situation in life. So they're going to have to learn how to take this biblical principle and apply it. To have some convictions. But that's never going to happen if they haven't learned to think upon God's Word. To study it. Meditate on it. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law... He meditates day and night. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Joshua 1.8, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Why? So that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. That's the aim. But they can't do that if they haven't learned to meditate on the law. We meditate on God's law. And finally, verse 9, you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Basically, the idea here is that the Word of God is not only to be the most dominating influence in your home. Uh, This is what informs us within our house. This is what we think about. This is what we talk about. This is what informs our actions. But also, as we go out through the gates We are to take it with us because this is what informs our social life, our hobbies, our work. Everything is dominated by the Word of God. You send your kids off, put it on your gate. Take it with you. This is where blessing comes. You add all of this up, what is Moses after? There is literally no place where we are to stop worshiping God. Worship of the Lord does not just happen in your home or at church. It's everywhere. Every place you go. What's the desired result of all of this? The end goal? Moses gives us three purposes. Actually, the first three verses. Deuteronomy 6.1, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you. Why? That you may do them. In the land of which you are going over, obedient living is the result of someone who believes in God and loves God. Also, verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God. You and your sons and your son's son. By keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Second result, lifelong fear. They might fear you when they're little, they might not. 
But what you want is when they leave you, is that they fear the Lord. And third, promise blessing. Hear therefore, O Israel, be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, and that the Lord, the God of your Father, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Blessing. This is what we want for our children. This is what we want for those we disciple. We want them to know the blessing that can only come from God. It doesn't mean that they're going to be wealthy or rich or always healthy, but it does mean that they will know the peace and the comfort and the strength that can come only from knowing God. And this is what Paul began with. You remember Ephesians 6.1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Promise. None of this happens outside of the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And thus our constant plea and prayer for our children, no matter what age they are, is that Christ would save them. True behavior modification happens only after true heart transformation. It only happens as they come to Christ. And so constantly, Father, help them to know their need of Christ. We are like those parents during Jesus' day who brought their children to Jesus that he might heal them. We're the ones who gave them this disease. Heal them. Save them. This is what we are to teach our children. Believe in God, love God, live for God. This is our responsibility. Children, what's your responsibility? What does God expect of you? What should be your response? Proverbs 1.8, Hear my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. If your parents are teaching you about God, they're trying to bless you, trying to help you. They're trying to pass on the one thing that leads to true meaning in life. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 1, 7, is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. If fools despise it, children... Those who are wise, listen. God is real. You are to love God, and you are to live for God. And you cannot do it without Christ. Repent of your sins. And turn to him, believe upon him. And what does Ephesians say? And Christ will shine upon you. And then... You can listen to your parents as they teach you all about the God they love. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. It is right. It is true. It is not easy to live out, but it is our desire to live it out. Father, we pray that you would save our children. Lord, our young children, that they would come to understand at an early age their sin before you, your holiness, 
and the provision that you have provided, the perfect provision through your son, Jesus Christ. Our teenage children, that you would guard and protect them from all the many temptations that will be flung at them, that they would have a love that is incorruptible. Father, that you would save them. Lord, help them to stand out in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. For our adult children that do not know you, Father, that you would bring circumstances, situations, opportunities for us to continue to speak the word of God, that you would do the work that we cannot do but would love for you to do, that you would save them. Father, you are good and you do good. We may not understand fully your ways, but Father, we trust you. So Lord, wherever we're at, whether at the beginning stages, whether at the end stages, whether we have kids or not, Father, our desire is to glorify you. And so Father, we ask and pray for this next generation that you would raise them up. Use our meager efforts as we seek to do the same, bringing them to you in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, would you please stand as we continue to worship?